Hello, True North. <laughs> that sounds cool. It's so good to be back in here with you. How are we doing this morning? Good, good. Are we feeling rested? Or, I mean, that, maybe that's asking a bit too much. Are we feeling at least a tad bit more rested than in other weeks? If not physically, then maybe mentally, emotionally, or even spiritually. Raise your hand if that's sort of you, if you think that might be kind of you. Even just kind of. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, last week, following our teaching on Sabbath, um, for those of you who were able to join our fellowship via Zoom, we discussed and workshopped Sabbath. Um, we did it together. Um, we all set aside a specific day and a specific time and duration. Uh, we figured out how we were going to be with God at the start of that time. And then we just laid out healthy, restful activities for the day. Um, I know for some of us, maybe a lot of us, um, this past week was quite possibly our first time ever observing and practicing Sabbath, you know, setting aside that day or half day if you're just starting to rest in God and to just relax, to be with God and then to unplug from our work or our usual day-to-day tasks um, and instead to use the time to do something life-giving. It was, it was beautiful to hear um, some of the creative outlets many of us had. Like, I, I loved hearing things like, when I was young, I used to draw. And then, you know, and then they're like, I'm, I'm gonna draw this week, I'm gonna, I'm gonna draw, or I'm gonna get back to cross-stitching or, or something like that. You know, in our hustle and bustle, these things restore our humanity not to mention our sanity. And they remind us that God made us to be creative beings. He made us to be essentially co-creators with him. Or for others, it was reading or, or taking a walk or simply sleeping in a bit or napping. God cares for our physical health. Um, and I hope that starting Sabbath with God was a step towards sensing his presence, a step towards real relationship, and a step towards having your soul renewed. And we all need, whether we realize it or not, we all need deep soul care and soul healing. And the only one who can do that is the healer, our Heavenly Father. Now, just a show of hands, you don't have to speak, just raise your hands. Who here found it a little hard this first time around? Yeah. Who here completely forgot about it? That's okay, we can, we can try again. Who here found it hard to, to simply honor that time that they had already carved out? Okay. Uh, who here completely forgot about that part where we were trying to be with God? Like you were so psyched to sleep in and then to do life-giving things that you forgot to start the time with God? That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. You know, no, it happens. No, no guilt tripping here. Uh, who here found it just hard to escape the constant nagging tasks looming in your mind? Yeah. Um, things that, you know, need to be taken, needed to be taken care of before you had your Sabbath. Work that you'll have to return to or errands that still need to be taken care of. I feel that. Who here found themselves a little restless, like, you know, the busyness or the hurry or the, the fast-paced living have become kind of like drugs and like habitual rhythms that we're just so deeply entrenched in that the day of Sabbath is, is like quitting cold turkey. Anyone feel like that? <laughs> I see chuckles. That's enough of an answer. Um, if this is you, don't worry. It's okay. Show yourself grace as Jesus shows you grace. Like I said, Sabbath and really any spiritual discipline or practice takes just that. It takes practice. It will most likely be hard at first. But then again, so is anything that is worthwhile. You know, learning an instrument or a language, being in a relationship, loving someone, walking with the Spirit. The most deeply fulfilling and enriching things take the most time. And unfortunately, this is why so many people give up. It's why so many people never tap into the most deeply fulfilling life that God has to offer. And it's so tragic, but we live so much of our lives on the surface, you know, just content with shallowness. 
Again, I know it was just the first week of Sabbath for many of us, um, but did, did anyone feel like their pace of life was just interrupted? Yeah, yeah. Sabbath definitely interrupts our weeks. It definitely interrupts our routines and schedules. And just FYI, it's designed to do that. It's designed by God to disrupt our schedules because without it, we forget who we are. Not to mention we just lack the strength and the energy for all the things that life throws at us. We forget that we are not primarily students, that we're not primarily professionals, we're not primarily social media moguls or gamers or you fill in the blank. The interruption of Sabbath reminds us that we are first and foremost God's creation. We are people made in his image to enjoy soul-satisfying relationship with him and rest in him. So yeah, it's an interruption. Sabbath slows down our pace of life. And as much as we need that, we don't like it. You know, we want fast. We want fast internet. This morning I was getting frustrated over our church Wi-Fi. We want fast delivery, fast results, efficiency, productivity. And God says, slow down. And that, that rubs against the grain of our Western culture of capitalism, consumerism, and its friends, busyness, hurry, comparison, and envy. And we just don't want to slow down. Or we feel like we can't possibly slow down because the world around us isn't going to slow down for us. A few weeks ago, I was working with a piano student, and this particular student struggled with one thing. Practicing slowly. A lot of you, well, some of you here can relate to that. He struggled with practicing slowly. He wants to learn fast, play fast, talk fast, and do everything fast. But the trouble is, a lot of times, as I was hinting at earlier, when it comes to learning skills and particularly difficult things, like piano or, or like tennis or like Japanese, whatever, you do have to first go slow in order to go fast. Practice slow to learn fast. If I want to play guitar, I'm probably going to learn what a G major chord and then an A minor chord is before I learn the solo to Stairway to Heaven or something. But with this, with a student of mine, you know, week after week, he would come and play his pieces. I would assign him one page and he would learn two. I'd tell him to practice slow and he'd only play fast. And the pieces, you know, the songs he was learning, they would sound like a hurricane. And not in a great way. And I can say that because he's not here. And I'd, I'd ask him, I'd be like, Ryan, did you practice slowly? To which he would look down and be like, well, no. And so a few weeks ago at our lesson, I was like, okay, Ryan, since you have trouble practicing slowly, I'm going to help you. We're, we're going to have a slow lesson together to help you with that here. And he looked at me with a puzzled look. And then I proceeded to teach the whole lesson slowly. I said everything like this. Ryan, let's try it again. <sighs> From the beginning. And it was like torture. He was like, ah, Brooks, can we please stop this? Yeah, that's what, that's what, that was his expression. Uh, and then I was like, no. Sorry, Ryan. Maybe next week. After we've developed our slow practice skills. Needless to say, the following week he sounded amazing. Yeah, everything was polished and well learned. And you know what the secret was? He practiced slowly and carefully. You got to go slow to go fast. And it's the same way with living a spiritual life. And by that, I mean actually having a relationship with Jesus, actually doing life with him, actually being able to hear his voice and sense the presence and guidance of the spirit. No, I don't mean relationship by what people tell you when you, when you become a Christian. By relationship, I mean actual active relationship. 
Again, the philosopher Dallas Willard reminds us that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life. It destroys any chance of it. And so we're going to keep on practicing Sabbath together as a community. We're going to help each other with it over the next weeks, months, years, really for the rest of our lives. And today we're going to take it one level deeper. So please grab your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 39. It's Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. And once you're there, go ahead and stand with me as we read the word of the Lord together. Mark writes, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. Then at evening, that, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you fill this place? Would you prepare our hearts? Would you give our tired minds energy to focus? And would you just slow us down to your pace and help us to hear you this morning? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Y'all can have a seat. So here we are, sorry to say, halfway through January and approaching February. I'm sorry if that makes you feel like the month is speeding by, but we are, in fact, approaching February, which for me means it's time, and maybe Kevin will join me because it's what we do, it means that it's time for the first hike of the season. I love getting out this early on because you, you get to witness very specific beauties that the Pacific Northwest has to offer. You know, there's, there's still snow and frost lingering, but greenery and life is returning. You know, the rivers and creeks are rushing because the snow is melting. The air is still cold and brisk, unlike summertime. And most importantly, there are less people. For an introvert like me, that's kind of the best part about hiking in the winter. There are less people, and therefore, by extension, less of one of my most hated things on the face of the planet. Bluetooth speakers. Hear me out. Like, I have one, but I keep it in my kitchen. When I want to listen to music in public, I do it in my car, or I use headphones. You see where I'm going with this. Church, hear me so that you avoid my wrath. I hate it when people go hiking with their Bluetooth speakers. I loathe it. Like, why? You know, why can't you use headphones? Why do you need to share with the world, with the birds of the air, with the chipmunks and the squirrels, your sweet playlist? Which, I'm sorry to say, usually isn't a sweet playlist. When I'm in the wilderness, breathing in fresh, unpolluted air, the last thing I want to hear is Olivia Rodrigo. But really, I never want to hear Olivia Rodriguez. Sorry, fans. Um, I want fresh, unpolluted air flowing through my nostrils. And is it too much to ask to want unpolluted air for my ears, too? To church, please, use headphones. Or maybe even unplug a little while. The Bible says so, sort of. All right, rant over. But I promise I'm going somewhere with this. The act of sonic terrorism on hikers and on God's beautiful forests is merely a symptom of this. 
we can't stand silence. We can't stand silence. And if I'm being totally honest, I'm guilty too. I play music on my Bluetooth speaker while I'm cooking, never on the trail. Why? Well, unless you're an amazing chef, which I'm not, cooking is more of a necessity and less of a leisure activity. And so music distracts me from the fact that it's a bit of a chore. I play music in the car when I'm driving. Why? Sitting through traffic is soul-sucking and I need a distraction. I can't face the existential war of traffic alone. When we have guests over, we often play music. Why? To fill the empty spaces and silences in between engaging conversation topics and tidbits. Why do we need to fill those spaces? We can't stand silence. We hate silence, especially awkward ones. Oh, the silence. Oh, the awkwardness. We can't stand silence, and we want to avoid it at all costs. And you know what else we can't stand? We can't stand being alone. We don't like to be in solitude. You know, who here has gone to the movies by themselves? Raise your hand. Guys. Who here has eaten at a restaurant by themselves? Ah, okay. My fellow introverts. Uh, who here has gone on a solo hike or a camping trip? Just Kevin. I thought that was nuts, not on the other hand. Now, before you say, well, I don't mind spending the whole day by myself at home, I ask, but are you really alone? Or are you just physically isolated by yourself while accompanied by a blue screen, AirPods, Netflix, YouTube, podcasts, games, social media, and the whole gamut of things our current world provides for us so that we don't really have to be you know, lucky or unlucky for us, we also live in the age of distraction. You know, we live in the age of the iPhone, which sits in our pockets but really has a chain around our necks, or implants in our brains. You know, you may be physically alone in your room, but you're not really alone, and it's definitely not silent. Friends, in our modern age, White noise is the norm. White noise is the norm and it's actually suffocating us. And it's actually suffocating any chance of spiritual life that we have. And this is point one, white noise suffocates. Now, don't worry. I know last week I was a real downer <laughs> presenting us with statistics pointing to just how stressed out we are and how it's getting worse. Like you, Gen Z and millennials, I'm included, don't worry, are the most stressed out generation so far. And it looks like stress is only trending up. And we, we, we won't get into the stats about distraction and what it's doing to us. We've talked about it before. And so I won't tell you that the average person touches their phone 2,617 times a day, which is more than we touch our faces. And that's the average person. You know, that includes my dad who still uses the iPhone with one button like this or one finger. For many of us millennials and Gen Zers, it's, it's probably a, a way heck of a lot more. Although with COVID, we're probably touching our faces less, so at least that's a win, right? We've already had a whole series on distraction and how distracted we are, how distraction actually keeps us from enjoying a satisfying and fulfilling life, how our distractedness is actually making us sadder and dumber. Our attention spans are actually shrinking. A book I'm reading cited a study that said our attention spans are actually getting to be shorter than a goldfish's attention span. Think about that. We've talked about how studies show that distraction keeps us from being present with ourselves and with others and how it's therefore blinding us and preventing self-awareness and actually killing our relationships and keeping them all shallow and helping us to live more shallow, unexamined, unfulfilled lives. Not to mention the fact that distraction, you know, something that is worse with our generation and getting worse, is one of the primary barriers between us and God between us and, again, actually having a real relationship with God. So don't worry, we won't get into all that. I won't be a downer. I'll let Blaise Pascal be a downer. Who here knows who Pascal is? Students, I'm looking at you. Blaise Pascal, he was a French mathematician from the 17th century, famous for Pascal's triangle, Pascal's theorem, Pascal's law, anybody? This guy invented the first calculator. Okay, fine, I get nods, that's, that's good enough. 
Um, he invented the first calculator and turns out he was also a genius theologian and Christian thinker. And he said this, all the unhappiness of men, and by that he means humans, arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own room. And he suggests that it's because we're afraid of being alone with our thoughts. Who can relate to that? He goes on, strong language he uses here, the natural poverty of our feeble and mortal condition, so miserable that nothing can comfort us when we think of it closely. Ouch, oof, man. They really had a way of speaking in the 17th century. He then says, he goes on here, hence it comes, people so much love noise and stir. Hence it comes that the prison is so horrible a punishment, or think timeouts when you were a kid. Hence it comes that the pleasure of solitude is a thing incomprehensible. Like we can't imagine the joy of solitude. Like solitude, no thanks. So basically, all of our, according to Pascal, all of our unhappiness boils down to the fact that we're not okay being alone with our thoughts. We are afraid of our thoughts because we're afraid of confronting the people we really are deep down inside. You know, we're afraid of the darkest corners and recesses of our hearts. We're afraid of confronting the reality that we are all broken people with flaws, weaknesses, embarrassing things, shame, behavior patterns, wounds that get passed down from generation to generation, and real, very real inner darkness. And so, since we don't want to face the reality of our inner selves, we distract ourselves. Our, our current world of distraction, it's like a candy store, you know, where you can pull off any kind of distraction you want off the shelves. You know, since we don't want to deal with that scary, deafening silence, we go hiking with our Bluetooth speakers on full blast. We leave the TV or YouTube on. We have AirPods constantly implanted, feeding our brains fast information. We have stands for our phones attached to our bed so we can scroll ourselves to sleep. So as I hike through the woods and a pack of college kids marches through with their Bluetooth speakers blasting Olivia Rodrigo, at first, I'm incredibly annoyed. But then I have to wonder, what are they afraid of? What are they hiding from? Maybe it's, just, maybe it's just one person. But what are they trying to drown out? I don't know their story. What are they escaping from? Maybe it's something I'll never know or experience. But maybe it's something that's, that's too terrible to face. Maybe it's, I don't know, a broken family. Maybe it's a past regret. Maybe it's shame for something they did or didn't do at a school or at a party. Maybe it's something way worse. Maybe it's suicidal thoughts. Maybe it's, trauma maybe it's a traumatizing sexual experience. Maybe it's abuse. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. I'll never know. But what about you? What are you trying to drown out? What are you trying to sleep away? What are you hiding or escaping from? I mean, what are you afraid to face? What are those dark, deep thoughts and or secrets inside you that you try to suppress every waking moment? You know, we can, we can go on and on about the terrible effects of distraction and hurry, and what it's doing to our brains and relationships. But I know that there is real hurt and brokenness. And it's a large part of why we choose to distract ourselves. The church. If we continually distract ourselves or allow ourselves to be distracted, if we continually use every means possible to drown out the problems, we only hurt ourselves in the long run, as well as the people around us, usually those closest to us. I know there are family wounds. I know 
There are traumatic experiences, insecurities, shame, and depression that lurks in the shadows. But friends, drowning them out does not make them go away. Distractions are flimsy bandages that always fall off. At the end of the day, we are still hurt. We're still broken. And if we don't face our inner selves and our inner demons, we stay broken. We stay hurt, wounded, and damaged. If we have families, we usually pass these wounds on. You know, we see things like mental illness, alcoholism, and sexual sin get passed down all the time. We stay broken. And then our children start out broken. And then we take our brokenness to the grave. There is no healing. You know, we, we get so used to, to, to hiding and wearing masks that our, our fake identities become our only identities. Our real selves die. Our true selves wither and die. And so what does our aversion, our distaste of silence cost us? And what does our distractibility ultimately cost us other than our IQ? One, we become less present with ourselves and less present than others. Noise suffocates relationships. Two, we lose touch with our true selves and, our, and, and reality. Our only identities become whatever the world shapes us into. The people we follow on social media become our gods, priests, and priestesses. They tell us who to be. And three, possibly the most damaging effect, we drown out the voice of God. We drown out the voice of God. There's just no room in our heads and hearts for the voice of our Heavenly Father. And so we drown out the voice of truth, of the one who tells us who we really are. We drown out the voice of hope. We drown out his love and grace. And really, we prevent any possibility of healing. We prevent any possibility of healing. It's like when you get cut as a kid, and your mom or your dad, they're like, let me see. And you pull away because you know that the antiseptic they're going to put on it is going to hurt. And we prevent any possibility of healing because we drown out the voice of the healer. We barricade ourselves from his healing touch. You know, if we... I just watched The Matrix 4. If we choose to remain in our matrix of distraction, we deny ourselves true peace, hope, and joy. We deny ourselves the purest love we could ever experience. And we deny ourselves deep soul healing and renewal. And we deny ourselves fulfilling, soul-satisfying relationship. And instead, we opt for a sad, shallow existence. Ironically, we choose the worst form of aloneness, and that's isolation. Friends, this isn't, this isn't an inspirational self-help TED Talk, but I am here to tell you that those things I just listed, true peace, true hope, joy, love, healing, renewal, you can have those things. You can have peace, hope, joy, love, healing, and renewal. My question is, do you want it? Do you really want it? There was a man who lived in the first century. He was a Palestinian Jew. You might have heard of him. His name was Jesus. And he had, guess what? He had peace, hope, joy, and love. And he had these things to the full. He had so much loved that he loved way more than anyone else ever could. And he brought healing and renewal. 
Does that mean that he lived a life free of any sadness, sorrow, stress, suffering, and tragedy? No. In fact, far from it. Jesus faced constant rejection. I know a lot of us hate the idea of rejection. He was constantly being rejected, constantly being hounded, constantly, and he was eventually betrayed and murdered. I mean, how many of us have been rejected and then betrayed and murdered? And yet, Jesus had peace, hope, joy, and love. And yet, he loved those who hated him. And yet, he still brings healing and renewal. And you have to remember this. You have to remember that Jesus was a man. He was fully God. Make no mistake about that. But he was also fully man. Human. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, Jesus was and is God. But when he came down to be with us, he essentially cast his God status aside to do life as a human. He chose not to tap into that divine power. You know, we always hear people say things like, well, of course Jesus could do that. He was God. Of course Jesus could heal people. He was God. Of course he could keep up with devotions and read his Bible regularly and walk closely with God. He was God. But Paul reminds us, he did life here on earth as a man, flesh and blood. Which is why Jesus can tell us, follow me. Now we can say, but you're God. But he could come right back and say, but I'm human. You know, we say, how, then, then how, did he do the things he, how did he do the things he did? Well, Matthew 3, 16 tells us, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. How did Jesus do the things he did? The same way he commands all of us to. By the Spirit. Which is why Acts chapter 1 tells us, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. This is why we see the apostles healing and casting out demons just like Jesus did. They were human. They were not God. And yet, we see them healing and casting out demons, just like Jesus did. So same spirit then, same spirit now in us. Pretty amazing, right? And so let's get back to our main point. Jesus had peace, hope, joy, and love in the midst of suffering, sorrow, and day-to-day stressful situations. And if he lived as a man and faced all these things as a human, how did he do it? And this is point two. How did Jesus do it? What was his way? The first question we must ask ourselves is, when did Jesus start his ministry? Did he, right after being born, just start going around preaching, healing, and casting out demons? Like imagine that little baby Jesus walking around teaching adults and beating up demons? The answer is no, that's not how it went down. Mary would have never let her infant son turn water to wine. But remember how we just read in Matthew that Jesus was baptized and the Spirit of God came upon him. He was about 30 when that happened and he did not start his ministry until after that happened. And so no, no, no baby Jesus walking, talking, preaching, healing, exercising demons. And so Jesus received the Spirit and then, and then got started on his ministry of preaching, healing, casting out demons, right? No. Matthew 4 tells us that after the Spirit came upon him, after he was filled by the Holy Spirit, you know what the Spirit did? 
the darnest thing. The Spirit led him into the desert. He went into the desert for 40 days and nights, not for a vacation, not for a retreat, but to fast. In other words, Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights in total silence and solitude. No food, no iPhone, no AirPods, not even a Bible app. Not even a verse of the day. Total silence and solitude. And you know what happened next? Was he like, man, that was a long time. I can't stand silence. I hate being alone. After the 40 days and nights, the devil came at him to tempt him. You know, the the devil came at Jesus thinking he was weak from all of the fasting and being alone. He thought he would be weak from all that time spent away from his family and friends and, and from food. And that he would get Jesus when he was super hungry. Or maybe he was hangry, I don't know. But man, was the devil wrong? We know the story. Jesus proceeds to shut the door in Satan's face. He shuts down all of Satan's temptations and lies. Jesus was not at his weakest. Quite the contrary, he was at his strongest. Jesus was strong, high on the spirit, and he totally beats Satan. Then, after this, he begins his ministry. So just to recap the sequence of events here. Jesus receives the Spirit, spends 40 days and nights in silence and solitude, then beats up the devil, then starts his ministry of preaching, healing, and casting out demons. Do you see what happened here? Right before Jesus does his most amazing things, right before he faces his most difficult struggles, he spends time in silence and solitude. He spends time alone with God, in the desert, free from distractions, free from the white noise. And he is at his strongest. Let's jump back to Mark. I'll, read, I'll just read verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. Notice how in the passage, this is bookended by ministry work, specifically miraculous healings. Now, Jesus heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Then he heals more people who are brought to him and casts out demons. Then he heals a leper. But in between all of this, Jesus goes out to a desolate place. He finds a, a, a quiet, sacred space and prays. He just spends time alone with his father. Luke's gospel sums up Jesus' habit quite neatly. Luke 5 states, but even now more the report, even now more the more report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So word gets out about Jesus and, and, and what he can do and so they bring more and more people to him But in the midst of it all, he regularly gets away to be alone with his father. Right after this passage, Luke's gospel goes right back to talk about Jesus' healing. Inserted between all of Jesus' busiest and most tiring days of ministry and relationships, healing impossible sicknesses and casting out demon after demon after demon. And we know Jesus was always interruptible. We know he was interruptible when the hemorrhaging woman touched his cloak. We know he was interruptible when Nicodemus came to him in the middle of the night. We know he was interruptible all the time. In between all of this balancing and juggling, he retreats to be alone with his father. Friends, this is the man who had peace, hope joy, and love. This is the life rhythm of the only person to have complete peace, hope, joy, and love. 
Notice how the most difficult, trying moments of Jesus' life were preceded and succeeded by silence and solitude. Being alone with God the Father. Before being tempted by the devil, he was alone with God, fasting in the desert for 40 days and nights. In between his crazy ministry schedule, he regularly retreated to be alone with God. Before being arrested and then crucified, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, alone with God. Do you see the pattern? Silence and solitude were central to Jesus' life. And what were the results? We can see that he emerged from those 40 days and nights in the desert with strength, with total assuredness of his identity, and with total clarity, purpose, and vision for his ministry. We can see that he emerged from all his times of prayer with renewed energy, patience, wisdom, and compassion for those whom he reached, taught, and healed. And we can see that going to the cross to his terrible, unjust, gruesome death on behalf of people who didn't deserve his love, that he had total peace. Notice how when he was praying in the garden before being arrested, before being betrayed by his friend, he was so afraid that he was sweating blood. But then notice that as he was being put on trial, a totally rigged, unfair trial at that, as he was being mocked, ridiculed, and spat on, as he was being beaten and tortured, and as he was being nailed to a cross, he had peace. Think about that. I want that peace. I mean, don't, don't you? Now I get it. We're busy. Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm busy too, you know. We have work deadlines to meet. We have tests to study for, friendships to maintain, social media personalities to keep up, bills to pay, mouths to feed. We're busy. I know. I'm right there with you. But we're also starved. We're also exhausted. We're also tired of balancing everything, or at least attempting to. We're tired of trying to be everything. Working mom, aspiring student, successful professional, viral TikTok presence. We feel more tired than a man who just fasted for 40 days and nights and about to go head to head with Satan. We have less energy, not to mention less patience and compassion, than a man who heals multitudes of the sick, many of whom went away totally ungrateful. We have less peace than a man about to be nailed to a cross. Ponder that for some perspective. Friends, don't you want that kind of strength and energy? Don't you want that assuredness, that total certainty of your true identity? Don't you want that peace, hope, and joy? And don't you want to be reminded again and again of just how loved you are by the creator of the universe? Like, God, just tell me again, please. I I just love hearing that. Doesn't that sound amazing? Remember, if you want the life of Jesus, if you want to enjoy that kind of peace, hope, joy, and love, then you must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Not because that's how we earn it. That's not it at all. We do not earn God's love by practicing silence and solitude or by any other spiritual practices or by serving We don't earn it. We cannot earn it. There's nothing you could ever do to earn God's love. Please understand that. His love is already available to us. It's already available for us to receive, to live into, and to enjoy. 
And here we get a crystal clear picture of what it looks like and how it's done. It's a life rhythm constantly marked and punctuated by time spent alone with God. It's a life marked and punctuated by silence and solitude. When Jesus invites us to follow him, he's inviting us to do life like he does life. He's inviting us to do what he did. He's like, essentially, follow my routine. He's inviting us to come to him and to spend time with him, to be alone with him, away from the distractions of our world, and to finally enjoy rest in him. He's inviting us to silence and solitude. This is point three. Catholic priest and writer Henry Nouwen states simply, kind of bluntly, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. So many of us yearn for more than the easily consumable and equally compartmentalized and forgettable Sunday experience. You know, some of us hop from church to church looking for that ideal experience looking for that ideal spark they just need for their Christian life, for their walk with Christ, only to find that there's no such thing as a perfect church that will fulfill all of our desires as pure or as misguided as they may be. My hope is that all of us at some point, preferably now, yearn for a relationship with God that is actually real. My hope is that you would grow tired of merely adopting the faith and belief of your parents or your grandparents or the generations that came before you. My hope is that you would grow tired of merely being a nominal believer. My hope is that you would grow increasingly tired of life without him. My hope is that we all yearn desperately to know and experience the living God. My hope is that we all yearn to hear him clearly and to truly be with him in that we would stop at nothing to have that intimacy with Jesus. Author and spiritual director Ruth Haley Barton writes, we are starved for intimacy, to see and feel and know God in the very cells of our being. We are starved for rest, to know God beyond what we can do for him. We are starved for quiet, to hear the sound of sheer silence that is the presence of God himself. The invitation to silence and solitude is an invitation to all of this. She then acknowledges the struggle as well as the fears we have stating. In the silence, we become aware of inner dynamics we have been able to avoid by keeping ourselves noisy and busy. They draw us into spiritual battle. Some of us have felt that. In silence, there is the potential for each of us to know that God is God with such certainty that the competing powers of evil and sin and the ego self can no longer hold us in their grip. All forces of evil band together to prevent our knowing God in this way because it brings an end to the dominion of those powers in our lives. Did you catch that? All forces of evil band together to prevent our knowing God in this way because it brings to an end the dominion of those powers in our lives. 
The last thing the devil wants is for us to have this kind of deep relationship with God. Because he knows that when we do, when we tap into this relationship, when we tap into this source of life and power, Satan begins to lose his grip on us. Dallas Willard writes, Solitude and silence are the most radical of the spiritual disciplines because they most directly attack the sources of human misery and wrongdoing. Meaning, they attack the roots of sin inside us. They attack the roots of our brokenness. They form a defense against the devil's lies because they draw us towards the truth of God. They form a defense against the agendas of the world because they attack the distractions that bombard our minds. To be with God, to go to him and be with him alone in silence and solitude is to launch a direct attack on evil. When we practice silence and solitude, when we spend time alone with God, we become centered in the way that Jesus was centered. We become assured of our identity and purpose, just as Jesus was assured of his identity and purpose. We become grounded on truth the way he was grounded on truth before facing the devil in the desert. When we regularly go to God to spend time with him alone, we begin to find supernatural rest. And we begin to draw supernatural strength. Just as Jesus did before his ministry, before each task he had to do, before each day of teaching, healing, or battling and casting out demons. We have access to the same power that Jesus had access to. We have access to the strength of God. Willard adds, spiritual disciplines like this enable us more and more to live in a power that is, strictly speaking, beyond us, deriving from the spiritual realm itself. When we regularly spend time with God, we can begin to have peace that surpasses all understanding. When we go into a job interview, when we drive a loved one to the hospital, when we put the pencil down after a final exam, when we, we can have the supernatural peace that Jesus had on his way to the cross. This is Jesus' offer and invitation. Why would we ever refuse that? Why would we ever refuse the invitation to that same peace hope, joy, and love that Jesus had. On a more immediately practical level, in a culture of go, 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 silence and solitude help us to slow down. Like Sabbath, it's a much-needed interruption. In a culture of constantly force-fed information, advertisements, and flashing lights in which we always have to be occupied with something, whether it's a show or Instagram, silence and solitude break our dependence on, or slavery to, noise and distraction. And once we break free from distraction by the power of the Spirit, we can breathe. Once we break free, we can be present again with ourselves and with each other. Believe it or not, we've actually instated a no-phone rule in our men's group meetings comprising adult men, and it's worked wonders. You know, we now have eye contact. We acknowledge each other's thoughts and questions. Game changer. We're, we're, We're more present with each other now. And so once we break free from distraction, our relationships can thrive. Furthermore, when we practice silence and solitude, we work with the Spirit to cultivate 
self-awareness. And believe me, we could all use a bit more self-awareness. And by a bit, I actually mean a ton. Silence and solitude cultivate inner awareness. We grow more and more aware of our feelings, our demons, what makes us tick in the true state of our hearts, which usually points us to our need for Jesus. But that's the beauty of it. He promises that he is with us. Silence and solitude cultivate spiritual awareness, which we really need if we're going to confront the darkness inside of us. Because that is real. You know, we confront our brokenness, but we are not left broken. We work with the Spirit to search our hearts, but then by the grace of God, we are assured of his love for us, we are assured of his work in us, and we are assured of the transformation and renewal he will bring about in us if we let him. I mean, does, does this sound great or what? Raise your hand if this sounds great. Don't be shy. Yes. Yes. I love how that first hand went up even before like, looking around to see if anyone else raised their hand. That was awesome. All right. Silence and solitude. Cool. So how do we do it? How do we practice silence and solitude? Sounds scary. Sounds hard. Guess what? It is at first. In the simplest terms, silence and solitude is just that. It's simply being alone with God, resting and enjoying his presence and listening rather than speaking. Meaning you don't do anything other than sit in stillness in silent prayer. It's crazy, right? You say nothing, do nothing, which is completely countercultural and radical in a world of do, do, do. And this is hard. It sounds like something reserved for, for monks or something. Now, I know there are more introverts than extroverts here, and so I want to be clear. When you are alone in your room, on your phone, or figuring out what show to watch, or even reading a book, that is not, I'm sorry to say, that is not silence and solitude. That is isolation. Our friend John Mark Comer states, solitude is engagement, isolation is escape. We're not talking about escape here. We're actually doing the opposite. True silence and solitude is being with God to let him reveal all the corners of your hearts, to let him reveal the things that regularly bombard your mind. And then to begin to heal all the corners of our heart. Rewiring our mind. It's being with God to let him shine his light on all the areas of our lives. So that he can then realign all the areas of our lives. Again, this sounds crazy. Sitting and doing nothing? Yes, very hard to do at first in the way of in the way sabbath is hard to do at first we've experienced that now but sabbath but when sabbath gets to be a regular part of our weekly rhythm someone last week said it was like christmas every week i mean how awesome is that how beautiful is that christmas every week and so by logic once silence and solitude gets to be a regular part of our daily rhythm it's like a mini sabbath every day a Sabbath is this, is this shot of grace into each week. Silence and solitude, once it's practiced, become like shots of grace into each day. And it's hard at first. And yes, most of us have never tried it. And so I want to conclude by helping us get started. And by the way, this is what we just did at our staff retreat this past weekend. Thomas hinted at that. So there are people among us here who can help you with this. Go to them and ask them, how do I do this? How do I get started? And also just ask them about how their experience with it has been. So here, practical steps. Start with silent prayer. You should take notes so you can know how to do this. Silent prayer is usually just that, sitting in silence and listening, letting the Spirit speak to you. It's mysterious and wonderful and countercultural, like I said, because we don't do anything. 
but let's take baby steps into it. Step one, find a quiet space away from where you'd normally do work. So like not at your desk, create a sacred space. Then sit in a comfortable but upright position and breathe slowly and deeply. Step one, make the space. Step two, find a small verse. I'd highly recommend Psalm 4610. That's what we meditated on just this past weekend. 4610. And, and read it out loud two to three times. Be still and know that I am God. And when, when you're starting out, it helps to have an anchor for our wandering minds. This is your anchor. And then step three, sit in silence for maybe five minutes at first. That might feel really hard. Then maybe seven minutes and then 10 and then 20 and so on if you feel ready for it and if your soul just craves it. Please note, this is an important tidbit here, you will be distracted. Don't feel bad. Don't worry. It's natural. It's inevitable, especially if you're not used to complete silence for prolonged periods. When you are distracted, it's okay. Show yourself grace and then call yourself back by saying, I say usually, Lord, here I am. When I find myself feeling distracted, I just say to myself, Lord, here I am. Or, or is even something like, come, Lord Jesus. That's kind of like your, your recall phrase. There will be times I'll sit in silence, and I find myself saying that like every five seconds on days where my mind is just super cluttered. And then finally, at the end of those long five or ten minutes, simply thank God for the time and for his presence. Or maybe even pray the Lord's Prayer. If 10 minutes is all you have, then great. This is an excellent start. If you have more time, practice reading scripture slowly. I love doing what's called Lectio Divina or divine reading. We'll have more time to get into detail after today's service at our post-sermon discussion time. But basically, you pray, choose a small passage, and read it slowly three times, savoring and just chewing on the words. Again, very, very contrary to how we usually like to either speed read or, or like critically analyze everything. Read it slowly three times, savoring and just chewing on the words and the ideas and focusing on the words or phrases that stand out to you and call your attention. And the beautiful thing about God's word is it's incredibly dense for the scholar, but that it speaks to the common person. So the goal here is to slow down and to just listen to the Spirit speaking to you through the text, to meditate on it, and then finally to respond to God through prayer. So these are two great ways to start practicing silence and solitude, silent prayer and Lectio Divina. This week, I encourage you to set aside a daily time for maybe just one of these, maybe just silent prayer. I strongly urge you to do it in the morning before you face the day's load. Just, just set your alarm 10 minutes earlier or snooze four times rather than five times. I usually wake up, I'll make a cup of coffee, and then I'll just sit in an empty room before going about the rest of my day. Since I know it's the first time really observing Sabbath for many of us, try starting your Sabbath with this. Just five or ten minutes to start. Like I said, it will be hard at first. You'll probably try it. You'll definitely be bored. Maybe feel nothing the first few times or weeks or months. And then you'll probably think this is pointless. But make it a plan to start it and stick with it. We will practice this as a community, supporting and encouraging each other. And as this practice becomes part of your life, we believe the Spirit will work and you will see it. 
And so, friends, dare to believe. Dare to trust. Dare to venture into unknown territory. Dare to practice discipline. We've talked about the spiritual benefits, but practically speaking, it's also a way to work on willpower and patience. But dare to believe that God shows up, that God changes lives, and that he wants to change your life. Tap into his higher power. Take up the yoke of Jesus. Adopt his lifestyle and begin to experience his peace, his hope, his joy, and his love. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for inviting us into this mysterious and beautiful and soul-filling relationship. Today we just ask that by your spirit that you would encourage us and move us just to accept your invitation, just to simply come and to simply be with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.